Okay, so welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to the show. This is a weekly podcast where we invite specialists um, in a certain area and then we discuss uh, the topic, the chosen topic. And for this segment, we have chosen uh, the, the subject of indigenous and traditional medicine because it seems very pertinent because the world is going through a pandemic and everyone's at home, uh, those who can afford to be home, of course, while others are out uh, trying to get back home, you know, in, in, in developing in the developing world. Um, so we have invited uh, on the show, uh, we have um, Leah, uh, Leah is an Ayurvedic consultant and uh, a yoga teacher and has been uh, practicing herbal medicine for many years in naturopathy. And she's based in Leeds, UK. Um, uh, Freedom Cole is uh, an, an Ayurvedic doctor and a Vedic astrology practitioner. And uh, he will tell us more about himself shortly. James is a, a Chinese medicine practitioner and an acupuncturist, uh, currently based in Vietnam. He's been in Southeast Asia for the past 20 years. And um, I'm a journalist and a filmmaker. And I uh, started this uh, podcast so we could explore different topics uh, every week you know, with uh, three or four uh, specialists in the area. And uh, it's, 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 it's from medicine to science to spirituality, art, uh, history, anthropology, sexuality, pop culture, and everything that falls in that range. So every week we have three or four very eclectic guests. And this is our first episode and we're going to be talking about traditional and ind indigenous medicine in light of the pandemic. Um, the pros and cons of modern versus traditional medicine, uh, the limitations of each. And, uh, and then we can also talk about uh, mental health and how indigenous cultures addressed mental health. Because that seems to be a crisis that the world is going through. Uh, you know, domestic abuse is up, uh, suicides are up all over the world. Uh, we are seeing an escalation in various disorders brought on now, uh, you know, which is increased with isolation and quarantine. And uh, so this is something that we wanted to kind of uh, bring to the forefront of this discussion. Um, okay, then. Uh, so would, would the three of you like to uh, give us a little more detail about, uh, you know, your background in the healing arts and the traditional uh, healing modalities of the cultures that you have studied in? So Leah, why don't you, why don't you start? Uh, well, I've, I've spent the last 30 years training and practicing as, um, in the field of naturopathy, uh, including Ayurveda. Um, and um, I went from clinical practice to now uh, what in Ayurveda we call hygiene of living, 
uh, I don't know why I'm doing quote marks, but <laughs> the hygiene of living is really um, helping people attune to the natural rhythm and their own circadian rhythms in order to balance their immune and endocrine system, neuroendocrine system. So that's what I do. Um, I, I find the, the, the wisdom of Ayurveda to be deeply, deeply profound, um, where the germ theory uh, originated in the Western medicine with the idea of Pasteur. Um, we find the mention of germs and microorganisms already three and a half thousand years ago in Rig Veda and then 1500 years later in Jataka Samhita. Uh, where they're called krimis, and they're differentiated in both uh, non-pathological and pathological uh, microorganisms and the diseases that are um, um, resultant from the infection with krimis or microorganisms are uh, called uh, krimiroga, beautiful names. And uh, so, yeah, there is a, a great tradition uh, in Ayurveda of treating infectious disease and, and the um, uh, general pandemics that have gone over the millennia. And uh, I'm really glad that we are here discussing uh, things uh, from a little bit of a different perspective because the dominant dialogue today seems to be all very much grounded in germ theory. Um, and not taking in consideration what in naturopathy and Ayurveda in Chinese medicine, uh, as far as I know, we term to be um, a soil theory, which is the susceptibility of our body to actually be resistant or susceptible to, to the uh, disease um, influence and the importance of nurturing of our immune system as opposed to looking for the external to uh, fight instead of our immune system. So thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, and, and Freedom, what would you like to tell us, our guests? Uh, about... Yes. So uh, I'm, I've been a practitioner since the late 90s. And uh, I started in the yoga field and was introduced to Ayurveda and dove into that. And that introduced me to the realm of Jyotish, which is often translated as Vedic astrology, which looks at the karmic reasons behind why are we getting certain diseases? Why do we have certain disease tendencies? Why are some people dying from COVID-19 and other people it, aren't even catching it? And uh, so, uh, and, and of most recent, I've been re-educating myself in the Western clinical psychology. And uh, I integrate all of those together in a practice where uh, I see people, uh, primarily I focus more on the mental health realm using Jyotish, Ayurveda and yoga therapy. Fantastic. I think we'll, we'll circle back to you because uh, there's a lot of questions I want to ask on mm -hmm. that point precisely. <laughs> uh, 
and and James. Oh, I see Franz is online. Hey, Franz. Uh, yes. We're just introducing ourselves. So that's uh, yeah, a misunderstanding about uh, the time difference. Hi. Okay. Hey. So we'll get to you in five minutes. Hey, James. So yeah, do you yeah. want to tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? Yeah. Sure. So I've practiced uh, Oriental medicine for about 22 years and have studied extensively in numerous university hospitals in China. My degrees from a college in the States. And I was going to be a conventional Western doctor and made a last minute decision to not go that route and to go into Chinese medicine. And I particularly chose that because I found that acupuncture was a viable replacement for many of the uh, medications and even scalpels and uh, the herbs also have a rich history and um, a rich library of chemical compounds that can be used for therapeutic purposes. And because of my interest in Western biomedicine as well, I've always been interested in um, explaining and understanding how acupuncture and herbal medicine work in Western biomedical ways and how it affects the physiology. And so um, bringing Western science to Oriental medicine has always been a goal of mine and, and practicing integrative medicine in that sense, because I think each of these forms that we're talking about, Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and Western medicine, they all have a place and um, I think that more that we can understand the strengths and weaknesses of our skill sets and these traditions than the better medicine can be overall. And um, integrative approaches are what I've put my focus on. Okay, great. So um, our final guest just came online. Uh, um, thanks, James. Thanks for that intro. We'll get back to you soon. Uh, so mm -hmm. Franz uh, uh, Pagnier is uh, from Holland and I've known him for over 20 years now. In fact, uh, we met in India and then um, he was in, in Pune uh, on a year-long Ayurvedic uh, diploma. And, uh, and then he moved to, to Brazil um, where he is uh, running a, uh, a forest uh, sanctuary as well as an herbal uh, medicine company. So he sources uh, Amazon remedies and uh, indigenous remedies um, and in the process, um, uh, you know, helping these communities get their indigenous knowledge out into the world and uh, in a fair trade uh, arrangement, you know, where they get what they deserve and not in the exploitative manner that, that corporations kind of, uh, you know, exploit these indigenous communities all over the world. So, but I let him uh, describe his, um, uh, his background a little bit, especially focused on this indigenous uh, remedy uh, initiative that you have undertaken in, in Brazil. Um, and Franz, so you know, I mean, you already know the other three and you know who they are. So you know where they're coming from. Uh, we yeah, have yeah, people yeah. who are specialized in the Chinese tradition, 
in the Indian tradition and in, in, in naturopathy in general. So, okay, I'll leave it up to you, man. Okay, well, after your introduction, there's not much uh, left to, to add. Uh, yes, I studied um, some basics of uh, Ayurveda in India from a general interest. Um, came through to Brazil through the, yeah, mainly through the so-called, let's say, sacred medicines. Uh, in the 19th, I drank ayahuasca and you know, my curiosity got aroused and went on a, on a journey where now I'm already 20 years here in Brazil. And um, professionally, I'm trained as a rolfer, not practitioner of the rolf method of structural integration in Boulder, Colorado. Worked many years with that, which is more like the um, yeah, a holistic uh, treatment of the physical, of the, the, the muscular structural part but it has the integrative, holistic vision of health and the human being as it relates, how it relates to the universe. And um, yeah, with my quest here in Brazil, I came more and more in contact with indigenous communities and started just for financing my travels, sell a little bit their products and this turned into into a company where we work with a lot of different communities, where we finance some projects and we kind of help them to build capacity through fair trade of their herbal products and handicrafts. And of course, with that being a curious person, I've picked up a basic knowledge of their vision of the world and health and medicine. And I think that's where, yeah what brings us all together here today. Okay, okay. So we'll, we'll circle back and go into more detail about uh, healing through, uh, you know, the specific, uh, some of the specific modalities and the principle behind them, behind indigenous medicine, and also ayahuasca, ayahuasca um, healing. Um, so because we want to get into more detail and then we want to compare these different uh, systems. Um, so Leah, so Leah, so Leah, do you want to go now? Uh, do you want to ask questions and, and, and start our, our program here? Well, uh, I, I, I'm really um, interested to kind of uh, hear a, a first step from first somebody. Uh, maybe James or France or Freedom would like to step in and start uh, sharing their viewpoint on. Um, this uh, ways of alternative ways of managing uh, this kind of pandemics, including our current corona pandemic. So I don't like I, I don't know I, I don't like to <laughs> call the name. James. Yeah, this is a it's a big question, and having practiced Chinese medicine. And, and lived there and seeing this emerge out of the It's uh, sparked a lot of interest and concern and a lot of different things. And uh, my teacher, he's a, one of my teachers, his name is John Chen. And he is a 
pharmacologist. He has a PhD in pharmacology and he's also a Chinese medicine doctor. So he understands the chemical compounds and how these herbs work. And he understands it from both perspective, a scientific perspective and from the traditional Chinese medicine perspective. So he's fluent in the language of both systems of medicine, allopathic medicine and Chinese medicine. And, and um, I've followed a lot of what he has, um, what he's teaching about this. And he's got extensive connections in China and got reports from doctors in the front line. And they've published a lot of material uh, you can find that at elotus.com, Evergreen is his company. And there's a lot of good information out there about what herbs they're using. And again, he's presenting both a Western medicine perspective and a Chinese medicine perspective. And a lot of doctors in China are trained in both systems and they take a much more integrative approach there. And so there's a lot of solutions that Chinese medicine has to offer. And since SARS, they did a lot of research on coronavirus and many of the researchers and certainly some of them uh, were greatly concerned that something like this would emerge and they did a lot of research on the herbs and understanding the chemical compounds that can be used and they understand a lot about uh, how some of these herbal medicines can be used in the treatment of it and the big question here is is just or the big concern that I have in this predates uh, Corona is just the lack of credibility and exposure and media attention that we get. Like we have viable solutions and you know, these are not being spoken of in mainstream media and it's very difficult to get any attention and the attention that we deserve to this. I was on the, the website for the uh, national center for uh, complementary medicine and it's a governmental funded agency and yet there is nothing on there about corona and nothing about herbs and I find this just really disheartening and, and disappointing because we offer viable solutions the science is there but no one's talking about it and you know how much funding is going into this there's billions of dollars being thrown at all sorts of things and you know rightfully so but uh, what concerns me the most is just how little credibility we get when we do have solutions and, and can play a role in this. So I'll just leave that at that for now and let someone else take the floor. I did find that the whole aspect of preventative care as well has been vastly underplayed. Uh, by both the uh, government sort of advisors and the main kind of channels of communication. Um, and um, so that's kind of, that's, that's an ongoing thing that is not just um, to do with Corona, but it really gets heightened in, in pandemic like we have today, where as you said rightly, James, there are so many good, good research already being conducted and such positive sort of um, positive outcomes recorded and yet nowhere this is being spoken of. Yeah. And, and to me, a lot of that sits primarily on the paradigm of, that we live in. 
and the belief system that people have been given. Uh, a lot of people, we, we live in a very uh, capitalistic, materialistic society, and people have been educated that science is the cutting edge and it's what we've had. And there's been a looking backwards as, oh, they, they used to not know and now we know. And so a lot of people are living in this paradigm looking to science as a savior. And in that looking to science as a savior, even when there is a traditional herbal medicine that might help something, the, they're not looking at the herbal medicine, they're looking at what, what, what can be extracted from it. And the companies that are controlling the medical system and the media, they aren't really interested in, in promoting an herb that people could grow in their backyard to help themselves. Their goal is to come up with a vaccine or uh, an extract of something or some type of chemical that uh, they have the ability to capitalize on. And uh, so when something in the traditional world is shown as beneficial, there's nobody cheering it on. They're, the capitalist system is not, they don't have anything to gain from it. And by living in a world that sees science as the savior and capitalism as the methodology, it does not give the credit and the potential for alternative medicine to get its uh, complete due and awareness and respect. Very interesting. And when you think about the development of science from the kind of um, mid 15th century into the early 16th century where Descartes came and sort of um, created this whole dualist uh, perspective with his philosophy, which was then kind of confirmed in a way with Newtonian discoveries in the late um, 1700s, um, or I mean 17th century, 1687 or something. And then, and then we have the whole kind of tip in the modern medicine where modern medicine becomes less of an art form, which was uh, a kind of handed down by Hippocrates, uh, but becomes this scientific form, which seems to um, discredit the, 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 the weightiness of treating the whole person rather than the symptom and in isolation. Uh, so the skin symptom is the skin symptom. It hasn't, it, it's not linked with person's um, outlook on the world, uh, ability to deal with stress, the digestive issues, the nutrition, the lifestyle, the environment. And uh, yeah, so what do you say, Franz? Well, James, you're gonna. Well, what I was thinking as well about this, um, yeah, what, what James was saying, he, he adapted in uh, his article about the blue and red pill a little bit the Trumpanian um, war um, terminology, you know, about Western medicine being a sniper. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that. Well, I would actually say the, the contrary because. 
the Western medicine is more like a cluster bomb where you just use it for a very particular thing, but actually it kind of detonates everywhere. way yes. beyond yeah. the, the thing exactly. itself. And the Chinese medicine where you just take one leaf that kind of ups a bit this and another leaf that kind of lowers a bit that element and that attacks a virus. And it's such a scientific, completely balanced thing where it's kind of funny that although our scientific model maybe comes from the 1500s, if you really look in the history of allopathy, you kind of come back to the 1920s, 30s. So to say that a system that is at least 2000 and probably five or 15,000 years old is alternative and something that comes, <laughs> that has seven, 90 years of, of history, which is even a bit doubtful, is like the end all of, of science. It, it's a very, yeah, it really depends on your point of view, you know, not even to get into <laughs> criticizing it, for, but it's, you know, it's a very relative. And like, for instance, with um, what's happening now with the, with the indigenous medicine, just to, 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 to say something about that with, in relation to the COVID, um, viruses for an indigenous communities always has been like very detrimental now it's like the vi the, the, the influenza that that killed off maybe 80 percent of indigenous people when the first spaniards came to to the americas and all that so at the moment most communities that i have contact with they're really like quite scared you know because they're they're very insecure they don't have so much access to, to information, you know, like the, the Chinese, although there's a lack of um, recognition that Chinese medicine deserves, it's still practiced on quite a high level. And so you see they've been doing for years already research into, into the SARS and things that relate to, the, to, to, to coronaviruses in general and all that. But the indigenous people there, they're already in a very difficult moment you now because they they just kind of, especially in Brazil, where, where, what I know, they, they just come, they're kind of coming out of their destruction from the rubber boom that kind of in the 80s and 90s, they started to reconnect to their own culture. Indigenous um, civil rights movement started where they were start, starting to kind of go against the missionaries and started to revalue their, um, their own culture. And with that, they started to revalue and rediscover their own spirituality. And with that, of course, their medicine, because like in these traditional systems like Ayurveda or even the Chinese, I imagine as well, and the, the thing of spirituality and medicine and healthy food and prevention and disease treatment is not also compartmentalized as in, in Western culture where we give everything its own little box and its own little name where it's more like it's more like one whole thing and like the indigenous they have this view of the world that in many ways it's, it's holistic so you can definitely compare many things to to Ayurveda or to the TCM uh, view where you consider the the relation of the person to the universe around and how you know how you take elements of the universe to 
to balance the, the microcosm in the in the person. So they work a lot with they have this concept of the panema, what they call it, and it's like uh, it's not as um, refined, let's say, as, as in, in Ayurveda, we have the doshas or the elements in the Chinese, but they have also this thing where you get like an accumulation of, of negative energy and that kind of brings dis-ease, this disease. Now you, and that's where these kind of spiritual medicines, like the, the, the ayahuasca or what, what you hear a lot nowadays, the, the frog medicine, where you kind of through a shock of the system where you kind of dissipate that accumulation of negative energy and like this bring bring the equilibrium back to the to the person and um, like this general well-being and your um, boost your immune system because you're you know you're more balanced and you're more strong and your your head is in the right place and all that so so now with just to 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 finish off with with um with this COVID thing, there, there's not much knowledge, I think, within the indigenous thing at the moment. They have like very specific things, although they have the, there's a lot of people there in the forest who started to take a lot of uh, kinakina, not the, the, the kinin, which is a malaria medicine, but which works good against uh, viral problems in general. But it's mainly based more on this, like what Leah was talking about, that the, the general health and preventive medicine where I think they have like a big part to play. So Franz, as far as, you know, I know that the Indian and Chinese systems have been codified and documented going back a very long time. And, you know, we have precise instructions and textual material on which to draw on and of course adapt to uh, you know, modern conditions and all that. So in, in the Brazilian indigenous system, I know that there's the Afro influences and then there's the indigenous tribes of, of Brazil. So have any of these, what, what, what are the codifications of these systems in, in that part of the world? It's all oral because like, um, and the indigenous, as I said, you know, the indigenous, like a lot of these communities where in the state where I work, which was a big um, rubber state, most of these communities, although they're really growing and a lot of them have now maybe a thousand members, a lot of them were down to like 20, 30 people. So they pretty much lost like probably 90% of more of their knowledge. So what they got left, it's really just the basic part of their, of what, what they knew. And like the, indigenous thing they're, 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 it's all like oral so they have no, nothing written down so they have in their tradition they've learned everything from the plants they learned from the forest they learned from the spirits of the forest which in a way if you think of uh, Ayurved who got it all handed down from I think Danvatri what's the name? Danvatri as well, it's it's also you know it's it's something that is received and perceived from the from the cosmos by people who have who have the the capability to communicate with whatever you want to call it the, the non-physical plane or the just perceive 
the systems in nature and bring that down to a, to a, to a health system. Like in the, the, the African tradition that is quite strong in Brazil, they uh, came more recent. Now it's like all mainly the slaves that were brought in the last wave of slaves that came from Yorubalandia, which is like um, Nigeria. Some people that got brought there were quite high uh, initiates within knowledge of their society and they came here as slaves, but they were actually people of quite high, a lot of knowledge. And they managed to to keep a lot of the knowledge because they started this last wave they're already close to the abolition so they already managed to keep a lot of their knowledge and they've really like handed it down now for the past 200 years all word of mouth and it's pretty much as intact nowadays as it was 200 years ago and it's still fully oral. There are some books written about the thing and some people have been codifying some of their knowledge but within the tradition it's all from from the Babalorisha who is the you know, who is the spiritual leader passed on to the to the young uh, initiate. So it's all like still word of mouth which is kind of interesting that it's still fair. Yeah, I mean, I see the value of oral traditions, obviously, but I also see the value in actually documenting these things and actually putting it on a digital data. So, and I'm surprised in a country like Brazil with so many great universities and scholars and anthropologists and, you know, that there has not been an initiative to document, you know, to make a proper sort of uh, repository of indigenous healing knowledge. Uh, and, well, it is, being, it is being done. Like there, there's, okay. there's a few um, people within the, even within the, the native indigenous uh, Indians community, there's some people who are starting to write down things and there's some anthropologists helping them. Within the African tradition, yeah. there is some quite literate people who've been in there for the past, in the past 50 years who've, who've written some very significant books with really codifying things. But it's the same thing as in, or even worse than what James was saying in China, you know, it's like, it's definitely not receiving the attention it, 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 it deserves and it's not receiving the, 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 the grants from universities that, that you would expect that such a invaluable depository of, of knowledge that is in a country that is not that there's not being given great attention to 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 actually saving that and um, yeah preserving it so it's uh, it's complex okay okay so um hey so um james i wanted to ask you you know yeah. this whole COVID-19 sort of crisis that's going on right now. And, you know, the fact that we are told it originated in in China, in a place called Wuhan, and there's competing theories as to how it came about. And now every day we hear about new manifestations of this COVID. And so 
what do the you know what are uh, the a- asian people so what what is uh, what are the chinese people and the traditional medicine people saying about this uh, and and how has it been addressed in china and um, you know what are the lessons that the rest of us can can take imbibe from from china i mean are they using mainly modern medicine are they well in china in my experience there you'll find hospitals that are that are allopathic hospitals combining with What's traditional that? chinese i i you broke Sorry. up at the end so okay. um in that. china the that i've been reading you'll find hospitals in china which have um herbal medicine departments and acupuncture departments and then you'll find some hospitals where it's primarily chinese medicine and other hospitals will be primarily western medicine and and so uh depending on the specific hospital they make different approaches uh one thing that is incredibly interesting about all this is is china's had a long history of of medicine and uh epidemics as well and john chen uh, says there's been 321 major epidemics in the last 2000 years and in the 1600s and 1700s uh, a particular school of chinese medicine emerged called the warm theory diseases and in these writings and what one of the major books that came from this time period is called the warm theory disease book and it documents these particular types of infectious diseases so the chinese approach generally they take a four stage approach to infectious diseases like this the first stage being prevention and they regulate that with immune modulating herbs and then the second stage is typically like the early symptoms and then the third stage is characterized by uh pneumonia in this case and they're starting to find the western doctors that it's affecting the cardiovascular system and causing inflammation within the the blood vessels and affecting the kidneys so these are all later stage um symptoms and conditions of the infection so it, chinese medicine takes a very detailed approach in the way that they understand it and they take a very personalized approach in treating it as well now for a, a epidemic and a pandemic of this magnitude the doctors in china couldn't always take the personalized approach so the government there they uh, necessitated using a standard formula that everyone got in certain hospitals and like in certain regions as well and they were able to do that because they do understand the biochemistry and the chemical compounds behind a lot of these herbs and so just to kind of sum that up depending on the stage of infection or if a person has not been infected by it yet they'll recommend different herbs and and one thing that i think is important to consider here and often chinese medicine it it gets it gets kind of uh criticized for being a placebo or for for uh, various other reasons and 
And, but it is a scientific system in itself. And one thing that continues to impress me about it is the, the research in biomedicine. It's, it's validating and it comes to a similar conclusion that Chinese medicine has understood for a long time. And essentially we're just dealing with language differences here. And I think one thing that the alternative community needs to do to uh, stand on a more equal footing is to be able to speak the language. So if we want to you know, reach more people, and I had this experience in my clinical practice, if, if we want to reach more people, we need to be able to speak that language. You know, you can't go into a foreign country and not speak the language and communicate well. So this is why I'm interested in communicating Chinese medicine in Western biomedicine terms, because I think that's an important um, factor for putting us on a more equal footing and gaining credibility. So as far as credibility goes, uh, there was a team of Chinese doctors who uh, deployed uh, certain elements of TCM and they won, uh, there was a Nobel uh, Prize for medicine a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, right? Awarded. Yeah, I, I believe she was Chinese. a Japanese woman. I'm sorry? I believe she was Japanese. Okay. The, the one who won the Nobel Prize in medicine. I believe she was Japanese, but the research was done on a, a Chinese medicine herb, Artemisia. And so from that, she developed a treatment for malaria that came from the herbs. And this is what Western biomedicine does, is it will look to those herbs for those chemical compounds that it can alter and then develop a pharmaceutical drug from. And you know, I think there's, being an integrative type guy, like there's, there's places for both of these, but when, when profit and economics override humanity as it often does in corporate medicine then this creates major problems and uh, this is something that needs to be reckoned with and the the uh recognition for for her research was given for the extraction process that she created with the herbal medicine not for her recognizing the herbal medicine and okay. that was a, a big discussion at the time that that mm -hmm. happened. Everybody was like, yes, natural medicine's being recognized. And literally the committee that awarded her the um, recognition said, no, 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 we're not recognizing traditional Chinese medicine. We're recognizing the extraction process that she's created for this, this herb. And wow. it was a contentious mm -hmm. uh, discussion that happened at that time around mm -hmm. that. I'm sure. Yeah, thanks for. Um, that's um, an important. Yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah. I'm having a slight uh, technical difficulties on this end. But um, um, so, uh, uh, Freedom. Yes. Um, you, you were trained uh, in, in, in Odisha, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. And. Uh, and how do you combine uh, Vedic astrology with, uh, with Ayurveda? 
I mean, uh, in so, what ways do you, does this work for you and your so, patients? So when, when we look from the Ayurvedic perspective, there is the physical level of disease, there's the mental level of disease, and then there's the karmic level of disease. And Western medicine has, uh, for a long time, they denied the, the, the power of the mind creating disease. And probably the last 30 years or so, there's been a huge, huge amount of data showing that uh, mental states do have an impact. And particularly in uh, immune immunology, uh, the state that your mind is in is impacting the immune system. The uh, Jyotish takes it one more level and it, it, it looks at what are the karmas that a person carries that is creating their mental state, that is creating their body state, and really works with both of them. If you stepped on a nail, uh, you wouldn't be looking at your karma. If you are depressed, uh, you, and you're in the middle of a divorce, you're not looking at karma. But somebody who's depressed and they're not having a situation in their life that is creating that depression, then there's deeper karmic indications. Uh, so just, just to give that three level of, of treatment approach from the Vedic perspective. And uh, when we do start looking at the karmas, uh, the karmic, and when I say look at the karmas, I'm looking at the astrological, the Vedic astrological system. And that system is based on a concept of three dosha and seven datus. So the, the seven datus are the system in the Ayurvedic world of what is the body made of? And when we look at the three doshas, we're looking at what are the three factors making the body uh, work? What is, what is making the body function? And so I'm looking at the stars, but my language is Ayurveda. Uh, the systems were, were born together. And so uh, for um, the COVID-19 situation, when we look at the, uh, the astrology of the COVID-19, and there's two levels of that. There's the individual treatment level of an individual, and then there's the why, do, why is it happening in the first place? And there are two different discussions. But when we look at it on the individual level of why are certain people getting COVID-19 and other people not, uh, the, and the indications, and we collected a bunch of... Uh, data on people that had had died from COVID-19. And in those charts, we saw afflictions to the fourth house, afflictions to the moon, and afflictions to the sign of cancer. And these were the people that died from COVID-19. And so when that gets translated into a, a body psychology concept, when we see issues in the fourth house, we're seeing uh, a person that has complications in their lungs. There's, there's an issue already happening in the lungs. And when we see complications with the moon, we're seeing emotional issues. And so we, we see somebody who has karma to have emotional issues. There's weaker lungs. Those emotional issues are being stuck in the lungs and complicating uh, the functioning of those lungs. 
And so when we, uh, Franz had mentioned a little earlier that the Brazilian indigenous uh, locals, they talk about person just having uh, a negative energy that needs to be cleansed. Uh, when we take it into the Jyotish side, we're looking at uh, not just negative energy, but we can go very specifically and see, oh, this person did, you know, their mother was very angry and yelled at them all the time. And they're, they're, they have this very closed off emotional system. And we can, we get very detailed about what emotional things are happening and we can see how that's impacting the psychology and thereby how it's impacting the body. And thereby we can see who has a tendency to be susceptible to uh, uh, a viral lung infection and what they need to do on a deeper, both psychological and spiritual level to be able to uh, protect themselves and do the work that's needed to be done to not have those complications. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, but what are, you know, because I often people have in this day and age, yeah. um, people are afflicted by diseases, often life threatening, very painful, and you know afflictions that need immediate uh, need to be addressed immediately. Yes. So uh, just to relieve themselves, you know, people uh, obviously they go to doctors because there is relief. You know, you definitely get relief from your symptoms, if not the ultimate uh, root of of that affliction. Uh, but but there is also there are also cures. You know, there are cancers that go into remission and. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there are various things that are addressed by modern medicine uh, very well. I mean, you cannot say that it's all something that we need to reject it completely. Oh. And at the same time, you know, if you have something that's happening to you that you're going through and, you know, you go to a doctor and then you follow instructions and sure, there are accidents and there are side effects and it's not, you know, all uh, perfect, but to some degree, to a large degree, it works in, in you know, whether you, you, you need to set a bone or you have a fracture or, or whatever it might, you know. Um, and, and so, so I find this tendency to reject, you know, I, I don't know if that's uh, necessarily a good attitude to have towards modern medicine. Uh, so where are the limitations of yeah. indigenous? Is indigenous more preventive, more preventative, and, and less, and is modern more, you know, addresses well, the, the problem the, right away? To me, uh, first, we, we need to look at, uh, one, one of the beautiful things uh, about Ayurveda, and I'm not as trained in, I'm, I'm not trained in traditional Chinese medicine, so I can't speak for that. But one of the beautiful things in Ayurveda is that uh, because they've been around for uh, centuries and millennia, there's been various uh, changes of climate that have been integrated. There's been changes in understanding herbal medicine that have been integrated. There's been changing systems and theories that have been integrated. So there's a way that Ayurveda integrates new information. 
And if we look at Ayurveda in India, an Ayurvedic doctor in India is completely trained in Western medicine as well as right. Ayurvedic medicine. And so right. it's integrated. But what we have in the West is we have MDs learning Western medicine and they're not learning the principles of Ayurveda. They're not learning the principles of traditional Chinese medicine. And so it's from the Western side, we're getting a non-integrated system. From the right. Ayurvedic side, if you break a bone or, or need to have a tumor removed, uh, Western medicine is the, uh, and I should say allopathic medicine is the go-to. Uh, let's, to, to have an operation, have it quickly without, uh, you know, with the anesthesia and the, um, everything that goes with that, uh, Western medicine is, is the go-to. Broken bone, uh, Western and it, Western wartime medicine has, has become more proficient in it. And Ayurveda recognizes where things are more proficient than others. Then you get right. somebody who uh, just, just the other day, there was, uh, I was helping one of my students with a client who has uh, chronic cystic acne uh, for 20 years, has tried every Western uh, medicine and, and poison that is possible with no help. And so she's finally come to uh, try a more alternative approach. And, uh, and so in that way, when something is, is very physiologically based, uh, because Western medicine is, and when I say materialistic medicine, it's, it's not just a put down, but they are in, in the Ayurvedic terminology, they're charvakas. Charvakas, meaning it, the physical world is the only thing. Mm -hmm. And they have developed the physical world medicine to a certain level that Ayurveda did not do and was not possible right. in the past. Yeah. And so when the situation is rooted in the physical plane, then Western medicine can sometimes be very powerful. When we start getting to certain deeper, more holistic realms where what's happening is a, a whole system issue, uh, the traditional medicines have a much, much better approach because they're treating a systemic issue, not just, not just saying, oh, your liver's not working, let's treat that. Where in Ayurveda, they say the liver's not working, let's remove the acidity from the entire body, let's get rid of the uh, emotional anger that you're carrying, let's, there's a, a deeper holistic uh, approach. And so both have their place. And it's important not to deny one. And in general, from the Ayurvedic world, what India is promoting and how India is offering Ayurveda to the world, they're offering Ayurveda in an integrated methodology. When we get to, and, and I'm in, in the US, uh, there's, there's a partition happening. And the partition is not happening from the Ayurvedic side. The partition right. is happening from the Western medical side. And the two realms, a Western medical doctor, they can lose their license by prescribing Ayurvedic medicine and, and therapies. So people get into a situation where they're doing one or the other because if they're doing one, they can lose their medical license. And 
and there, there's a, a split happening. The interesting thing is, as you mentioned, the uh, um, polycystic ovary syndrome in the Western medicine, allopathic medicine, it is one of the conditions that it's called incurable. They call it incurable. Exactly. And so it's really, you know, and, and they will kind of, they would rather stick to their guns and keep on feeding the, 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 the medication or substances or treatments that might have a, a small kind of impact in a short run, but over the time do not yield any results and the symptoms will get worse. And they would not bow to the you know, wisdom of another tradition to say, well, these guys know, um, which is exactly what you've been saying, which is quite sad because if somebody comes with me to me with, you know, torn tendon or a ligament in a knee uh, and ask me for yoga practices to heal it and Ayurvedic poultices and practices to heal it, I will volunteer those, but I will also supply them with the information for potentially going for the surgery and having the realignment or kind of stitching of the tendon or fusing or whatever. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is that one way kind of road at the moment that's dominating. And uh, we can also look, there's, there's a certain level of, and, and I call it colonial consciousness. Hmm. colonial consciousness and if you think about what allowed a country to come into another country subjugate its its people and subjugate its culture replace those people and, and that culture with their own and believe that their culture was better hmm. and so we've we've lived in in a few hundred years of this colonial consciousness where people can believe that they're, what they have is better than and suppress others. And when we look in Western medicine, Western medicine is still living in colonial consciousness. They're not interested in recognizing Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine because there's an inherent thought process that they are better. Mm. What they have is better. And there's an, an egotism of, of not saying, well, maybe the uh, Indian subcontinent figured out how to treat this disease better than us a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. To admit that uh, the Chinese figured out how to uh, work with pain a uh, thousand, 2000 years ago, better than any European uh, based uh, system, uh, you know, to this present time has been able to, it requires a certain level of humility, which colonial consciousness doesn't have. And so as far as integration, uh, it's almost as if you, when the British were ruling India, uh, if you said to the British, you know, these, uh, these, your subjects are actually as smart as you, we should make everybody equal here. They, they said, no, these are our subjects. And the Western modern medicine is living in that same paradigm. Mm -hmm. So 
we recognize their knowledge, but it's not a two-way street at this moment in time. Right. Um, yeah, go on, Franz. You were saying something? You know about this thing of the, um, especially with, with the acute cases, acute diseases, and we have the physical things like a broken leg, like Western medicine is wonderful. You know, you, you set your leg, you, you, you fix it, great. And some of the more acute diseases as well. But it seems with the more chronic diseases, they're more like system-based because they come over a long time. And usually they come from small imbalances that over the years start to manifest and deeper and deeper get into the system. And there might be an emotional problem where, you know, you have like the, the, the like freedom say with, 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 with what the astrology can point out very well, or it can just be like a, something, a dietary thing. And these things over a long time, they create this more chronical diseases. And it seems like Western medicine, because they don't recognize whole systems, they only recognize the parts. They cannot understand chronic diseases because if you don't recognize the system, the whole system where this thing kind of sneaked into is slowly took over the whole system. If you don't recognize that the system exists, it's very hard to actually understand the disease. And if you don't understand it, it's very hard to treat it. So then if you then, you know, a cancer throw literally napalm on it or Agent Orange or whatever they put in there, like chemotherapy, you know, it's a very, it's not very refined. And if you then see like how Ayurved or traditional medicine, or even like the indigenous medicine, which is, you know, there's a fair, there's a much more simpler way of looking at things. It's very, um, uh, it's from nature people, people who are more like nature people. So they really work with their direct perception and like the, the medicine men, you know, especially traditionally the medicine men take the ayahuasca and then he don't give it to the patient, he drink it. And then in his vision, he go travel through the, through the body and energetic body of the, the subject. And then he'll find out what's wrong with the person. Oh no, it's a physical thing. You have to take this and this herb. Oh no, there's an obsessing spirit or there's like an, an ancestor who, ha uh, who has some unresolved issues so we have to make an offering or we have to do a herb or we have to take a bath or you have to go for a walk in the forest or whatever you know but it's it's very much based on vision and even then with this very simple thing the the level of success with 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 chronic diseases it's it's very high it's really above placebo like james was saying that even chinese medicine with it's so precise scientific thing is called placebo by people. It's like a complete insult, you know? Yeah. But like, if you look at, at, at allopathic medicine, there's a lot of allopathic remedies that if you look at the, um, the success rate, it's very close to actually the success rate of placebo. So it's much more Western medicine that a lot of their treatments you could call placebo. And actually Chinese and Ayurveda, where you have many times like 60 to 80% chance well, many uh, allopathic medicines have close to 50% or even under 50% chance. And we're, around 50%, we're already pretty much in the placebo level of success. 
the the resultant uh, success rate for current chemotherapy treatments is between zero point uh, sorry zero point zero two and two percent. These are the success rates for chemotherapy right now. Yeah, it's not placebo. No, the ninety percent, ninety-eight percent of people do die. The zero point, uh, I mean, two percent to zero point two, zero point zero two percent survive. But that's that's not placebo. This is high scientific. Yeah, well, maybe a, a good placebo would have a higher um, level than than chemotherapy. Eighty percent, like like Ayurveda. TCM and Ayurveda, 80% success placebo. I go for that every time. When you go into the mental health realm, uh, yeah. some of these Prozacs and these kind of things, they, they are riding just a, just a hair over placebo. And, uh, and there you're in a, a realm where it's so close to placebo, you the the study itself can be skewed to make it over placebo. Exactly. No, but speaking of mental health, now you know this is a it's a it's a minefield. It's a minefield because there's one school of thought that believes that mental health issues are caused by your environment. And much of this obviously uh, segues into new age and so-called traditional thinking, because we say that this industrial world and the postmodern uh, paradigm, it, it, it lends itself very easily to depression and other mental health issues, you know, and that people are not in their natural environment and they're not doing what they love and they're forcing themselves in the, and this uh, the stress is caused by uh, competition and unrealistic goals and all of that so that's one side of it which is you know to some degree one could say that yes if people and then people start working out to feel healthier or now they do yoga so they can you know be better perform better at their uh, at their jobs um So yoga is now deployed as, you know, uh, in, in today's world. Um, but there's another, uh, you know, mental health has, has, this, 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 uh, has other dimensions, which are, there are certain conditions which are very serious and are clearly not caused by environmental factors or just depression from a bad job or a bad marriage or because your wife cheated you know, with your best friend, you know, there, is, there are problems with clinical depression where you have, uh, you know, a deficiency of a certain hormone or chemical or endorphin, or there's bipolar disease, the schizophrenia, you know, uh, there are uh, serious conditions that uh, you cannot just dismiss them and say, oh, no, this is all, you know, we can, uh, if we heal our environment and we can heal ourselves, and that sort of thing. And I know people personally who've been benefited immensely by uh, 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 the psychotropic medication, including anti-anxiety medication, antidepressants, um, uh, you know, what's known as antipsychotic 
medication because some people go into rage and they're not able to control their rage and it, it, because it's a, it's a chemical imbalance, you know, which some people are born with. And now they have studies which show that you can inherit these problems, including PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And there are, you know, if your parents were refugees or if you're a refugee. So yeah, the holistic, uh, you know, definitely the holistic approach plays a big part. It can alleviate symptoms. It can make your life much better. But uh, there are some people who cannot do without medication. You know, it's as simple as that. Mm. So, you know, I'm coming from a place, you know, where my father was battling with many of these, you know, with this his whole life. And uh, his father before him, and I've written about this, and how it showed up in my life, you know, because I inherited. And then I had to take measures, both holistic and, uh, you know, modern, to uh, deal with these things. So, uh, uh, yeah, you can go on a jog and feel really good about it after you go on the jog. You can do yoga and all that. Talking, I'd like to start with freedom and then go on to uh, James and, and Leah and Franz. But freedom, since you're specifically addressing mm. mental health issue and the crisis of mental health, you know, through these traditional medical systems, you know, what do you have to say about this? Because we see this escalating now, especially yes. uh, during the quarantine. There are suicides, child abuse, domestic violence, name it. And it's proliferating. So uh, let's talk about this a little bit. On a certain level, that could be its whole own podcast, but in a slight summary. No, we will have another one. We will have another That's one. Good. But let's talk about um, it. Yeah. So so again, I'm, I'm presenting the, the three-level model of there are certain mental disorders that are completely physical and a lack of certain vitamins and nutrients. And Ayurveda recognizes that sometimes there is a completely physiological uh, mental disturbance. Other times there's uh, the emotional body is not, there's something that happened and the person is not able to express it and it's creating certain issues. And then we have uh, the karmic level where there's mental disturbance. And uh, often uh, when I'm working on, on the level where the mental disorder is karmic, uh, I, I give Vedic remedies and I will often send people to the direction of France to be working with more ancestral karma. And the Western medicine says you inherit it. And they've just understood the concept of epigenetics, which give it another 15 years. And I, I guarantee you that's going to yeah. change even more. <laughs> um, you know, once they fully start getting this concept of the ancestral karma that's inherited, that we're, we're dealing with karma that our, our ancestors had. And if we don't work through that, it's going to pass on to our children. Um, uh, but as far as the Western medicine on mental health, uh, when I talk about physical medicine, I have, you know, there's a lot of areas where Western medicine is very strong. When it comes to mental health, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a disaster zone with, with mental health. 
most of the medicine that they sell as balancing neurotransmitters uh, is not actually balancing anything. And it, it is much more an analgesic that is making a person not feel, that is turning off certain uh, sensations or that is numbing and sedating a person. And they've come up with these medicines that can sedate you uh, emotionally, yet still allow you to cognitively function. And uh, now there is the percent of the population, and when I say the percent, there's people with issues, with certain levels of depression or anxiety or uh, various um, compulsive schizophrenic issues. And, and those are two different departments in, in Ayurveda. Compulsive schizophrenic is a different department than anxiety and depressive uh, issues. Uh, depressive uh, anxiety issues are, are very mind-body based. Uh, and there's karma involved, but they're mind-body based. When we get into the compulsions and the schizophrenia, we're in the karmic realm, we're in the ancestral karma, we're in the past life karma levels of things needing to be treated. Um, uh, and certain people have a situation so intense that they need to be sedated to be able to function. And they need to be sedated in order to get proper treatment. And in that case, Western medicines for mental health are beneficial. The, the key issue is to differentiate the level of sedation versus, and, and to not confuse that with healing. And we get a situation where um, for certain types of anxiety and depression, if a person just takes Western medicine and isn't doing the traditional medicine on top of that, then what happens is it's just a matter of time before their medication stops working or they come off of it and, and can't come off of it. And when they do come off of it, they have a worse situation. To do the medications, the Western medications, and then allow the traditional medicine to actually fix the issue and then come off of the Western sedative medications, that's, that's the um, approach that uh, I myself promote. And it's a dangerous realm because if I promote coming off of these sedative medicines, that compromises my license to practice psychotherapy. And, and I'm put in danger by the Western medical system by saying that. And the fact that it's dangerous for me to say that means that there's a problem happening. There, there's a problem in, in the system. But mental health. Um, uh, so Western medicine does have its point in helping to manage symptoms so that therapy can be done, so that treatment can be done. Uh, and, and I'm very clear that in, in my experience and everything that I've seen from the mental health world, the Western medical system does not know what they're doing, um, at least in an integrative perspective. Um, yeah, and I didn't really talk too much about the present moment with the COVID-19, but I want to make sure that I'm giving space for everybody else to give their opinion. So I'll stop there. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, okay, cool. Great. Thank you. That was very helpful. Uh, and like you said, it deserves a podcast of its own, which we are, yeah. uh, which we are working towards. I have uh, in fact, people came up to me and said, we should do a podcast on this. And I said, yeah, we will. 
and uh, we're going to invite more people. Uh, so, James, do you want to uh, weigh in on this, on this topic that we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So in light of uh, coronavirus and a lot of the mental health issues that are arising out of this, I, I think um, a lot of it's probably due to socioeconomic factors as well. And in a holistic model that I use, it accounts for four major areas of life. There's the physical realm of our biochemistry and our cells and organ functions and this is the realm of Western medicine. And then on the other side of that is the mind and psychology and meditation. And I would even classify a personal, uh, people's personal karma in this realm as well. This is what's going on in the individual subjective side and uh, counselors and psychologists are trained at this level of therapy. And, a lot of alternative approaches will uh, consider the mind-body connection, and um, there's a lot that can be said just about that. So where Western medicine deals with the physical side of things, psychology and counselors deals with the mental, emotional, and perhaps even the spiritual side of things. But what can often get overlooked in a holistic model are social factors, and environmental factors as well. And so in a holistic approach that I use, it accounts for these four major areas, the physical body, the inner psychology and consciousness of the person and social factors as well as environmental factors. So, you know, to what degree these are all manifesting in the current situation, um, is really yet to be determined, but social economic factors are playing a major role in this. And then this can trigger a person's uh, personal traumas and, you know, their, their history and their, their own unique psychology. So without this sort of big picture perspective, it can be really difficult to accurately diagnose and discover the causative factors. And if a Western doctor is trained in only seeing that physical side of things and approaching mental health from a pharmacological perspective, then their viewpoint and perspective is going to be very narrow. And likewise, that can happen to alternative people too, where they look for causative factors within their realm of training, but may miss uh, other relevant factors within the condition. And so I think for these discussions, it's really important to keep these four major areas in our awareness, being the physical, the psychological, spiritual, the social, and the environmental, um, because each of those will play a role in health and healing, both for the individual and for uh, the collective and society. So yeah. just yeah. one thing I'd add to that too is that biologists and, and um, people that study evolution, they, they know that when populations get really dense, that they're more susceptible to disease. And, um, you know, perhaps this is a factor in what we're dealing with now, uh, perhaps not, but as, as populations increase in density, 
environmental degradation happens as well as more susceptibility to disease. And this is something that I don't necessarily hear a lot about in mainstream media as well. And uh, the environmental situation and uh, climate change is something that we should probably be weighing in on as well in this current situation. Yeah, Leah, you were about to say something? Yeah, I, I, I really wanted to um, speak to the, we are still talking about mental health for a short moment, but um, yeah. I, I really wanted to speak to the um, differentiation uh, uh, of, of certain things or actually point to just a, a, a progress from Ayurvedic perspective um, as, as, as Freedom was already speaking a lot, but I just wanted to uh, say, and, and uh, Franz was pointing uh, to the progress of disease. And in Ayurveda, we, we notice six sort of levels of progression of disease. And it is um, understood that the first four stages of disease are not actually diagnosable by the Western medicine. It is only when the pathology sets in um, and in case of mental health illness, um, it, it is to do with chemical and electric impulses that can then be read off. That this is where this um, kind of chemical imbalance becomes apparent. And from the material perspective of allopathic Western medicine, um, this is what they treat. And they make a big, big, big sort of distance between the um, being spiritually not nourished and not grounded in ourselves and not being in an environment that uh, enables us to flourish, even though that the external environment might seem uh, kind of ideal, and not taking in uh, consideration the ancestral trauma or the epigenetics um, like we are starting to see now. But I've worked and continue to work with people who have come to me some who have been uh, on medication all their life, um, some, some who were diagnosed with bipolar or uh, bipolar disease or schizophrenia, uh, some with chronic depression on antidepressants for years, uh, some with PTSD, many, many, many with um, chronic anxiety disorder. And without encouraging them to come off medicine, I have come to see that by actually dealing with the root cause of their discomfort, which expresses itself not only in, on a mental sphere, but also on physical uh, and emotional and, and kind of um, system sphere. So the digestion is not uh, well, in tune, the elimination is not well in tune, the skin is showing the kind of uh, slight symptoms which diagnosed from the uh, Western perspective are unrelated problems. But looking from the holistic perspective, we can see that there is a 
definitive line there. And, and when we come to Ayurveda, even the most heavily kind of uh, delineated mental um, illnesses like schizophrenia or, 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 or any other kind of chemical imbalance, ones are, are really down to the, the, the imbalance in the doshas, the imbalance in the elements. Uh, of prakriti of the body and what I've witnessed over and over and over again over the years that I've been uh, kind of working in this sphere is that people come off medication with with support of their kind of primary um, primary health practitioner in allopathic sort of field and um, and they don't actually drop back down into that place because with the work that we do, they actually start to balance the elements. So I don't think that we can really speak about, you know, inherited mental illness or chronic mental illness or inborn mental illness as, um, as a be all and end all, as a sort of a, a curse in a sense. An incurable state that has no way out. There is a way out, and and there might be, you know, there might be in some in some circumstances chemical imbalances that can be addressed. But but if if the deeper underlying kind of reasons for those imbalances are not tackled, then simply being on allopathic medication is not going to have much kind of, it's not going to create much impact overall in a long term. Right. So there was a very interesting point that came up that was made by uh, Freedom about epigenetics. And yeah, I know it's in vogue these days and lots of articles have been written about it in mainstream media. So can we talk about this? Because I'm sure people here have uh, interesting things to say about epi epigenetics and how uh, this uh, you know, concept is used in um, traditional medicine. Uh, uh, so would you, would you like to uh, start? and then we can go down the line. Could we start with France talking about ancestral, some of the ancestral work? Yeah, sure. Yeah, but um, the mental health issue then, let's start with the mental health and kind of go into the, the epigenetic or how that affects, because like, yeah, first of all, I really agree with, with James about this thing about um, pharmaceutical drugs in general, they are like really heavy tranquilizers and they are not really cures, they don't cure and they actually make people on long-term use more sick than, um, yeah, than healthy. And a lot of these, a lot of these, these, these same principles of, you can find them in, in plants as well, you know, like in Brazil, you have mulungu, which is a really good uh, medicine for sleep disorders that where a lot of the chemical um, 
medicines for sleep disorders, they really disturb your whole uh, dream pattern and like this, they kind of make you more imbalanced over time where a plant like this, you, it just relaxes you and it gives you your sleep and it maintains your whole process of going through your whole processing thing in your sleep and you have a lot of the, 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 the MAOs that are used in uh, pharmaceutical uh, psychiatrical medicines that you can find as well in, for instance in the Benastoriopsis, Kapi, Vine, now which is the ayahuasca ingredient where more and more people are taking the vine by itself when, where it's an uh, arima, which is a reversal of MAO, which is much more healthy for mental states than the fully chemical um, MAOs. So I just wanted to add that, that even, even the, the things that we use the chemicals for, you can find them within the, the plant kingdom as well. And then if you, if you get to like the, the vision of mental health in the, in the, the indigenous Brazilian and in maybe in the African tradition as well, then it's like this kind of modern thing where everything becomes a syndrome and it's like, um, hyperactive syndrome or this syndrome and that syndrome where you seem to have to give everything like a, a separate name so you can give it a separate medicine and there's a separate remedy for each thing you know and it's kind of like a it seems to be more like a marketing gimmick than actually like science and where in for instance in in the indigenous, you work very much with this, what I call the panema, which, you know, which is this accumulation of, of negative energy, which really affects for a big part the mental state first of the person. First you get into your depression or your mental disorders, and then that slowly manifests into more physical diseases. And that is many times you can be resolved you now with... With, with, with people's own spiritual quest, like that's where the, the ayahuasca really helps because you kind of go on your own little uh, shaman's journey with to digging back in yourself and trying to look at yourself. Now it's kind of, you kind of get like a bird's eye view of yourself where you kind of step out of your own reality and you look from a distance at yourself, at your family situation, at all these, you know, things and you start to get more of an understanding of your, of how you became the person that you are. And like that, it also becomes more easy to undo certain problematic um, things that created the less functional parts of who you are at this moment. Then with more um, heavy things like uh, real uh, psychotic states and um, schizophrenia and things like this. For these kind of people, actually, it's better to not uh, partake in this kind of medicines because it can create more psychosis because these things are not for everybody. You know, you have to have some kind of, you know, your feet a bit on the ground to be able to, mm -hmm. to go into this thing. And, you know, people who are psychotic, they definitely should, shouldn't participate in this kind of 
uh, endeavors. Um, then if you go from the, the African point of view, they work a lot with, with destiny. They have this called, thing called Odu. There's 16 Odus and they're like, um, it's a bit hard to explain it in, in few words, but they work a lot. You have like the, 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 the entities, the divinities, no? which would be in the Indian system, the Devas or something, which are the Orishas. And then you have the Odus. They are like different aspects of destiny. And your destiny is kind of set out. You have like a way that is kind of based on certain things that you carry from maybe from past lives or just from your, um, from where you came from, from who you are, your, your, your essential, your, the essence of your being, whatever you want, however you want to, to, to put that. But each destiny has like a left side and a right side. You know, you can either go to the wrong side or you can go to the right side. So all these, these concepts of destiny, they can, they can go both ways. And then true, um, in, in the African tradition, there's no astrological uh, divination. Like there's the divination by throwing the curry shells and through that, quite amazingly, they can kind of see pretty much where, um, where your issues are. And if it's with, with, with ancestors or something with family or something in your own destiny and like this, you can kind of, um, the, the, they can kind of see where your problems are and you can see what can be done and mostly in the form of offerings or certain herbs or certain herbal preparations that are taking over your body. That these things can be, can be corrected and can be sent in the right direction. Um, There's something that is very unscientific in many ways. Um, I'm from personal uh, from my personal experiences and as a young acolyte in this tradition, I can definitely say that it's quite amazing what, what the results are. But they're basically, um, yes, it's definitely something that in a, from a scientific point of view, you could bring, bring to, this, to, the, to, the, to the thing of epigenetics where you really like see what, how certain uh, external factors and that can be from way beyond and things that, that, that your family members brought from their lives. It's not even talking about your own past lives or something like this, but just things that came to maybe to your great grandfather, passed on to your, to your grandfather, to your father, to your mother, whatever, and then to you how that can affect um, who you are in this moment. And this can also affect the problems that you bring. And then, you know, this brings your mental problems and yeah.
it's a little bit hard to explain it in a few words and I never really brought it too much in this, in this psychological uh, thing. So I have a little bit of a struggle of um, getting it all in concise few words, but that's no, no, more like... all for, Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in fact, I just want to hear, uh, you know, people's personal understanding of epigenetics. So we all understand it better and our viewers understand it better. So let's not take it for granted because there may be viewers out there who do not, who are not familiar with this concept. So mm. can we define it, you know, yeah. for people who are, you know, not uh, conversant with this idea? So epigenetics, uh, once, once the Western medicine discovered genetics, uh, there came the view that everything about us, our health, our body, was determined by our genetics passed on from our parents. And the most recent research shows that even though we have certain genes, it doesn't mean they're turned on. And, and so what is turning on certain genes and other genes not turned on, creating certain symptoms and qualities and natures? And they've found that, uh, I think it, the, the first research was originally with rats uh, and a certain flavor. And they started doing study where uh, the, the rats being, a, they, they trained rats to be attracted to a certain smell and flavor. And they got it so that three generations later, the offspring of those rats were still attracted to that scent and flavor. And so they found that this, this nature was passed down. And that's come into various, various levels of, of research. And uh, the, in, in the mental health realm, they've shown, uh, you know, if you have schizophrenia in your family, you're more likely to, uh, if you have a, a relative, an older relative that's schizophrenic, there's more likelihood of schizophrenia being in the family. Uh, depression, anxiety, various physical health issues are more likely to be in your family if you have elders uh, that have the same genetics, um, but it's not a guarantee. And it's the epigenetics of what is the situation that is turning this on and not turning this on. And uh, in the mental health uh, trauma, they've shown that the impact of trauma is, is turning on certain genes and not other genes. In, in Ayurveda, the word for this is adibala pravritta. And so they have a concept of, of certain diseases that are inherited. And they've, uh, in, in Ayurveda, they speak of very particular disorders that are genetic. You know, we, we would call it, uh, these genetic. And, uh, and because there's not an understanding in Western medicine of this spiritual level in karma, uh, the epigenetics is a wonderful way to um, root these inherited things in a biophysical uh, level of the body. What I like about epigenetics as well, and this whole new level of its development, is that it's now showing that epigenetics are not only to do with the external environment of the cell and the inherited sort of uh, predisposition of our uh, DNA and our cells, but it's also a real-time 
impact that we can have on our genetic material mm -hmm. by the choices that we make, by the thoughts that we are healthily having. And there is a big kind of discussion here that we can have about mindfulness and, and also about this whole kind of um, tendency towards positivity, which is actually false and uh, quite, quite, um, quite uh, dangerous really to health. Uh, but that's another whole subject. But generally what I'm trying to say, what I love about epigenetics is that is now showing that we can influence our development of the cells in real time right now, in this very second now, by simply making choices with our mind and also making choices uh, in, with our environment, external environment. So, yeah. I think Vikram's frozen. Oh, is he? <laughs> James, you haven't said anything about your line on Epigenetic. epigenetics. Yeah, I wouldn't consider it a specialty of mine, but as I understand it, it relates to the variations in which genes can express themselves. And in a reductionistic perspective that, um, you know, they're looking for from point A from the genetic code to point B is an expressed protein of that genetic code. And, um, so we're, we're basically talking about variations in the way that our DNA can manifest and influence our health as well as our psychology. And sometimes when I hear this conversation discussed, I hear it from the sort of psychological perspective and how things can get passed down through families. And then there's also the sort of more biomedical perspective on it about the variation in gene expression and how this can unfold. So what excites me about it is that I think that it's going to lend some secrets to the mind body connection and how our minds do influence our health and do influence the ways in which our genes express themselves. And I think it's important to go back to what I was saying earlier as well, is that social and environmental factors will also be found to influence gene expression and uh, gene variation. And so it's a lot to weigh in on. And uh, last year I had the opportunity to edit a book on uh, transgenerational psychology uh, written by a Swiss psychoanalyst, and he was interested in the ways in which uh, behavioral patterns and uh, these types of things can get passed down through family members, even though um, a child may be adopted or the child may have never known the grandmother, but still continues to manifest certain behaviors or have dreams that were uh, indicating some experience that the grandmother had or someone in the distant family. And so um, certainly there's 
I think plenty of evidence now to show that things don't just get passed through uh, family members in a purely physical sense, but that there seems to be something uh, more going on here that we don't understand that gets passed on that we can think of in more of a psychological or spiritual sense. So it's a really difficult conversation to, to get a grip on. And uh, again, it's not a specialty of mine, so I'm not quite sure how well I'm qualified to speak about it. But I do like, just to sum it up, how um, it points to a mind-body connection that is unexplainable in, in just purely Western scientific terms, as we typically think of it, but the way that it also points to larger social factors and environmental factors influencing gene expression too. And this is something that I don't think we can get. It's, it's not so clear cut as what materialistic and reductionistic scientific systems think of. So I, th I think that it provides an opportunity for us to have a bigger holistic perspective that accounts for psychological, spiritual, social, and environmental considerations. So I think that's about all I have to say about that for now. <laughs> um, just, you, you know, you keep bringing up the, the social level and uh, there's, there's uh, some recent work uh, that an Indian professor is calling environmental phenomenology. And he uh, discusses how uh, Ayurveda uses an environmental phenomenology in and referring to, uh, from the Western perspective, when we say mind, we often think of mind as this thing that's in here that's separate from everything else. And he discusses how... Um, the environment, what is in the environment is continuously impacting and controlling the nature of what we call mind. Uh, in the Ayurvedic realm, one of the primary treatments for mental disorders is sangha, it, it's who you're associating with. Mm -hmm. So they really put a lot of emphasis on if you're having a mental issue, hang out with better people, hang out in a better environment. It's, it's kind of a fundamental underlying treatment for mind um it's it's almost like the container for the treatment of mind is the social environmental influence the which national. yeah and and being that we're in this COVID 19 bringing it back to the COVID 19 um topic uh people are locked in their homes uh on facebook and such other social media listening to conspiracy theories that are just bringing tons of anxiety and fear and uh, you know, who knows what little cold could have turned into something three times as bad because of all the anxiousness that the social uh, media sphere is putting in people right now. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's, uh social factors from social media are having a very large impact on the way a lot of people are thinking and their inner experience and state of fear. But even the mainstream, I mean, you know, I, I spoke to, around this uh, amazing little group of um, elderly students yoga, 
I think my youngest is 74, my oldest is 94, and they wow. rock, they rock. And uh, anyway, but uh, when the lockdown was being kind of in, in the pipeline, and many of them were saying, I, I don't want to be locked down. I, I can't imagine. I mean, at 94, three weeks of lockdown might be life and death, kind of, you know, are you going to be alive at the end of it? Although they're all very kind of, you know, uh, dynamic individuals, but they were, they were afraid of being alone. But what I noticed is I rang them about a week in, and one of them answered the phone and I said, how are you? And she said, I've just measured my temperature. I said, have you got any symptoms? She says, no, 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 I'm fine. But I've just measured my temperature again. I said, again, how many times? This is 10 o'clock in the morning. I said, how many times did you actually measure your temperature today? She said, five times. I said, five times. And I said, what's the temperature? She said, 36.9. She said, do you think this is high? I said, no, this is a normal human range between 36.5 and 37.5. So anyway, her, her health advisor told her that she should be monitoring her health by measuring her temperature, even though that she was without any symptoms. And she was doing that for a few days now like measuring her temperature every 20 minutes probably. And so I advise them not to. And what I'm really looking at at this point of COVID lockdown and the mainstream media is that whole aspect of making people completely distant from their own common sense and their own trust in their own senses. And this is what really scares me. You know, we've gone through the last 20 years of kind of the experts say, where people's integrity and their own kind of um, autocracy has been given to the experts. And now in this last few weeks, this has gone to really alarming levels that mm -hmm nobody is using their discernment any longer. I mean, you know, if I suddenly become unwell and I feel shivers and I feel cold and I feel, you know, all these symptoms of, of temperature coming on, maybe I will measure my temperature. I probably will. Well, I don't have thermometer, but if I did, I probably would, yes? But, you know, when this kind of, agency over our own bodies is now taken away from us and given to this arbitrary kind of measures and devices. This is what really worries me right now. There was a wonderful article on in, in Croatia by this um, political and social commentator um, where he said, do we need to legislate our right to become ill? Do we have to specifically legislate our right to become ill? And my cousin, for instance, she's been ill with COVID, diagnosed with COVID a few weeks back. 
And she has got, um, she's a young woman, late 30s, two children, wonderful husband, very active sexual life, and a very high, very high kind of, you know, uh, career woman, very capable. And she's been having these kind of frequent colds with the flu seasons. Every, every, every year she gets at least one flu if not to autumn and the winter. So I think her whole immune system's been a little bit under par. Her ojas are depleted, as we say in, in Ayurveda. And she actually tested now positive for COVID virus and had a, a lot of kind of uh, exhausting symptoms. Um, but her husband and two children are systematically testing negative even though that they're not in kind of isolation or she's not in isolation and uh, they're not only asymptomatic they are COVID negative so this whole kind of conversation about immunity and vaccination and and um, and also the herd immunity is a very biased conversation based on the whole germ theory not taking in consideration the health of the soil. So these two kind of aspects of the that are going on right now, uh, which is this war against the germ and not really giving any advice how to boost our immune system. And this whole thing about people telling you when to take precautions and what kind of precautions to take as the only way of mediating the potential infection and the spread amongst people uh, is something as well to think about. Yeah, I wanted to add something about uh this mental health issue and epigenetics and all that, how this is going to influence us in the long term, because there is so much fear being created and there's the, the conspiracy side that come with quite scary theories. And at the same time, there's just a medical mainstream, which is really scary as well, because we don't really know how bad this coronavirus is and there's people dying and it's definitely a real disease and all that, but it's not a bubonic plague, you know? So, but the fear that people have, like here in Brazil, at the moment, you have to wear a mask. There's all these people driving a car alone with the face mask on. And people have this idea that if you step out of your house and you don't put a mask on, you're gonna die. So the amount of fear that's being generated <laughs> is like so like over the top and it's so unhealthy for people's mental state because like, like in, in my, my little company, we, we kind of try to function as much as possible, a little bit of home office, a little bit of packing, packing and sending out orders and all that. And we're all pretty down to earth. But even there, you know, there's so much tension in the air and there's such a, thing of, of fear and if it's created by the crazy conspiracy theorists or by the crazy mainstream media because I think they're both both yeah. quite extreme 
So it's like, but there's like so much fear and so much uncertainty. And then people are so much, because the experts say, just accepting that you have to stay a meter and a half away from people and people getting into this Stasi kind of things of telling on your neighbor because he walked his dog three times already today instead of only two times. That it kind of makes you wonder like how this is going to affect our whole um, group mind over time and how this is going to come into this and, you know, talking about epigenetics and how our thoughts and our fears, of course, which is one of the strongest emotions, affect our... Um, genetic system because like fear is definitely something very bad for your immune system like being afraid is definitely not making you more resistant and more health and like being locked in the house without getting any sunlight and vitamin d and things like this or just getting a good hug from a friend or something you know these are definitely things that are affecting people on a very emotional level and at the moment, it's a bit early to see about the remedies for these things, but like you see that domestic violence is going up, alcoholism is going up, and while on Facebook people are talking about learning a third language, the reality is that most people are just getting fat and turning into alcoholics and beating their wife, kind of mm. putting it a bit bluntly. And it's really like, if you look at numbers, some numbers are starting to come out now of these side effects, and it's quite worrisome, actually, if you like, get scared by 10,000 deaths of corona and all that. If you look at the number of cases of domestic violence and all that, the and numbers the are way bigger, actually, than corona numbers. So it's definitely a thing to see of are the measurements and the, 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 is, is the, the remedy worse than the disease and all that, you know, what is in in perspective, and I was reading the other day, I was looking this uh, podcast by this, um, so a writer who was talking about this, and person absolutely not linked to the conspiracy thing, was definitely staying away from that. But he was talking about some really interesting points about how in the old days, death was much more close to us. You know, people died much more frequently and easily, and it was just normal, oh, okay, he died, okay. You know, get on with it and life goes on. And now we're getting into this point where we have such fear of death and we are so focused on the quantity of life that we're like willing to just give all the quality away just for the quantity. And like, it's like, like okay, he was, saying, he was saying like, okay, I have an old mother. If I don't have to visit her for one month to, to, to make her more secure. Yeah, that sounds reasonably. But if I don't have to visit my mother who's 75 for half a year, and you're gonna miss half a year of contact with a person who is not gonna be there anymore any moment, just to maybe gain another few months extra or not even, you know, it's, at what point is it worth to give up all, this, all our quality of life for a bit of quantity? You know, do we have to sit in restaurants with plastic shields in between us? In some kind of, kind of globe, completely dystopian, black mirror-ish kind of like future. Is this really like, you know, how, to, to when is it worth to, to give up our basic humanness of being together? Because like, you know, being together is one of the main things of humanness. And 
You know, if you take like, for instance, nowadays, everybody's now talking about the Hong Kong flu of the 60s. Nobody ever knew about the Hong Kong flu. It's just because a few people started to research and they found the Hong Kong flu where more than a million people died. I mean, Woodstock was happening at the same time with like 300,000 people on, on the muddy field. So, you know, we never even noticed these million people who died. So you're like, it's, it's definitely some interesting questions to ask and not even to get into any of the things of what it is or how it is, but just like how we are dealing with this and with ourselves in this, in this moment is definitely some yeah, interesting questions from the point of mental health and even epigenetics and all that. The, the, on the point of death, there is over 170,000 deaths annually from the uh, cardiovascular disease in UK only. And the um, seasonal flu uh, takes, and the, this is from the data from the government agency statistics. Um, seasonal flu uh, takes every year between, in, in three months of the flu in spring and in autumn, between 27,000 and 49,000 people every year in the UK only and every other country has uh, similar stats. Uh, so it's really interesting to look at that whole perspective of us being so frightened by the possibility of the death that we are afraid of living. Yeah, exactly. And people locked in okay, their home. Okay, so. People locked in their home, afraid and getting depressed. Oh. Both are emotions that compromise the lungs. Yes, indeed. And in the end, make them more susceptible to getting this itch, getting the COVID nineteen. Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, so did James log off? Uh, seems... I think he might have disconnected. Yeah, he he. He was disconnected for, or he had to go, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, all right, well, so we've been online for uh, now almost an hour and a half. So I think maybe we should wrap it up because people have other things, I'm sure. Um, and we need to, uh, you know, uh, uh, what are, what do we want to conclude with in terms of, would you guys like to ask each other a question after now you know who you are and is there a final question that any of you would like to ask any other uh, guest on the panel and uh, so let's uh, you know try and conclude uh, the conversation and I'm sure we can have more follow-up sessions but um, um, so did you want to ask something from uh, you're free to ask each other questions, you know, so we can wrap it up. Let's, uh, what's the last? So let's uh, be the first to finish then. Um, yes, a final question. I, I wouldn't have a final question for anybody. I would love to continue talking for hours and hours since, we, since there seems to be a lot of knowledge and interesting points of view in, amongst all the participants. So, yeah, just... Uh, I think my last remark was pretty much the, the last thing I wanted to say about the COVID anyway. So thank you all yeah. for, for the participation and yeah.
be great to continue this yeah, conversation. Yeah, connect because I, 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 I know all of you, you know, to some degree personally and over the years. And so there's some very interesting stuff, uh, these thoughts, and it's nice for people to um, get together online and uh, really talk about these things because all of us are engaged in this field, you know, and all of us are, have been pursuing it for, for years. So it's nice to see how people bounce off each other and, and uh, where the conversation leads us. And uh, that was the idea for this podcast is to get like-minded people together and, um, and just, you know, see where the conversation goes. Uh, so, and I think uh, so far it's been really nice. I've learned a lot. And uh, there's, there's so much more. We've only uh, scraped the, the surface. Um, so, yeah, thank you all for coming. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. And, and I'm sure we'll see you again, yeah? Um, and I'm sure we'll see you again online as well as in the real world, you know. Um, we can all come down and uh, to... to uh, the forest sanctuary and do a retreat together when things get back to normal, you know, that, and I've been talking to Franz about this. And, uh, and uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons I brought everyone here is because this is something I wanted to, I've been, I want to do a retreat, a physical retreat and call interest and, 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 you know, have 20 to 30 people and we can uh, do a curriculum and then, uh, and take it from there. So James is not here, but he, I wanted to call him as well because he's an acupuncturist. You know, and his, uh, so his expertise would be very valuable in any, any kind of retreat setting. Thanks, Vikram. Thanks, Vikram, for your work. You use the term cultural critic. I, I like to think more. I like to think of you more as a a, a thought provoker. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, good man. I hope to see you again. Yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you all. Okay. See you all. Thank you very much. And this was fun talk. Yes. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.